0: Hello! Thanks for joining me today. This is Murder Bucket, and I'm your host, Hannah. On today's episode, we are going to talk about Mary Surratt, the first woman to ever be executed by the United States government. So, why don't we just go ahead and get started? Mary Elizabeth Surratt was born sometime between 1820 and 1823. Two Archibald and Elizabeth Ann. She was born on a tobacco plantation that her parents owned near Waterloo, Maryland, which is now known as Clinton. She has two brothers, John, who was born in 1822, and James, who was born in 1825. Mary was around two or five years old when James was born. Unfortunately, that was also the year that her father died from a fall. Her mother was able to inherit the entire property of the tobacco plantation. Ten years later, in 1835, Mary was enrolled in a private Catholic girl boarding school in Alexandria, Virginia, called the Academy for Young Ladies. Even though her father was non denominational Protestant and her mother was Episcopalian, they sent her to this school. Within two years of attending the school, Mary decided to convert to Roman Catholicism and adopted the baptismal name of Maria Eugenia. She attended that school for roughly four years. When Mary was roughly 16 or 19 years old, she met John Harrison. He was 26. John, who was an orphan, was adopted by Richard and Sarah Neal of Washington, D.C., who were a very wealthy couple that owned a farm. The Neals divided their farm among their children, and John was able to inherit a portion of it. Now, historian Kate Clifford Larson has described his background as very questionable, and it is believed that he fathered at least one child out of wedlock. Mary and John married in August of 1840, about a year after they met. Now, it is said that John converted to Roman Catholicism before the marriage, but that's not 100% confirmed, neither is the fact that they possibly wed in a Catholic church in Washington, D.C. John purchased a mill in Oxon Hill, Maryland, and the couple moved from John's home in Washington, D.C. And over the next few years after their marriage, Mary gave birth to three children, Isaac, born in June of 1841, Elizabeth, born in January of 1843, and John Jr., born in April of 1844. In 1843, right before John Jr.'s birth, John purchased 236 acres of land from his adopted father that straddles the border of D.C. and Maryland. Today, it is located between Wheeler Road and Owens Road. The parcel is called Fox Hall. Now, I did try to find the exact location on maps, but was unable to locate it due to the records online, only going back to the 1950s. John's adopted father, Richard, died in September of 1843, and a month later, John purchased 119 acres of land adjoining Foxhall. John now owns 355 acres total. So my question is, can somebody with a ton of land just adopt me and maybe deed it over to me? Because I would love to live on 355 acres. In 1845, John, Mary, and their children moved back to John's childhood home in D.C. to help his mother run the family farm. And shortly after they moved back, she ended up falling ill and died in August of the same year. Now, before her death, she deeded the remainder of the farm to John, so John owns the 355 acres that he bought in Foxhall, and now owns the Neal Farm. Mary, Mary became very involved in raising funds to build Saint Ignatius Church in Oxenhill, but unfortunately, John didn't approve of her religious activities. Uh, his behavior deteriorated over the next few years of their marriage. And he began to drink very heavily and his temper became volatile and very violent. In 1851, it is said that an escaped family slave of the Neal family was a suspect in the burning of their farmhouse that ended up burning to the ground. Mary had to move out of the house with her children and moved in with her cousin near the farm due to John's heavy drinking and his abuse. And while she was away, John purchased 200 more acres of farmland near what is now known as Clinton. And by 1853, he had constructed a tavern and an inn. Now, Mary refused to move herself and the children back home and took up residency on the old Neal Farm. But John sold the family farm and the land he owned, known as Fox Hill, to pay off debts, which forced Mary and the children to move back home with him in December. With the money that he earned from the tavern and the sale of the land, John bought a townhouse in D.C. and began to rent it out to tenants. He then built a hotel as an addition to his tavern and named it Surratt's Hotel. And the area around the tavern was officially named Surratt'sville, which is also now known as Clinton. He then expanded his businesses by acquiring and building a carriage house, corn crib, a general store, a forge, a granary, gristmill, stable, tobacco curing house, and wheelwright shop. The family had enough money to send all three of the Surat children to a nearby Roman Catholic boarding school. Isaac and John Jr. attended school at St. Thomas Manor, while Anna attended Mary's alma mater of the Academy for Young Ladies. While the family's debt continued to mount, John's drinking, unfortunately, got worse. He had to sell off 120 more acres to pay off those debts. And by 1857, the Surratt's sold all but half of the land that they owned. And many of the family slaves were also sold to pay off his debts. In about 1860, the school that Isaac and John attended, St. Thomas Manor, closed, forcing Isaac to find work in Baltimore. The family sold off another 100 acres of land to help Anna stay at the Academy for Young Ladies and allowed John Jr. to enroll at St. Charles College. In an article I found, it says that the couple had to put property up as collateral to obtain a $1,000 loan so that the children could go to school. Everyone knows that the American Civil War began on April 12th of 1861, and while the border state of Maryland remained part of the United States, the Surrats were Confederate sympathizers. A Confederate sympathizer is someone who is a part of a conspiracy, pretty much an accomplice. The tavern that they owned regularly hosted fellow sympathizers, and it was often used as a safe house for Confederate spies. It is known that Confederate scout and spy Thomas Nelson Conrad was a frequent visitor of the boarding house before and during the Civil War. Uh, Three days after Abraham Lincoln's inauguration as the 16th president, Isaac left Maryland, traveled to Texas, and enlisted in the Confederate States Army. John Jr. then quit his studies at St. Charles College in July of 1861 and became a courier for the Confederate Secret Service, which meant that he moved messages, cash, and contraband back and forth across the enemy lines. So this has pretty much turned into a family affair. Everyone has become a Confederate sympathizer. A detective with the Union Intelligence Service, Lafayette Baker, along with 300 Union soldiers, would camp in Surrattsville and investigate the Surrats and others for Confederate activities. He did uncover evidence of large Confederate courier network operating in the area, made a few arrests, but the courier network remained intact. On August 25th or 26th of 1862, the date does differ between articles, John Surratt collapsed and died suddenly, and his cause of death was found to be a stroke. But to no surprise, the Surratt family affair was in serious financial difficulty. So John Jr. and Anna both left school to help their mother run the family's remaining farmland and businesses. In September of the same year, John Jr. was appointed the postmaster of Surrattsville Post Office. Remember the detective uh, Lafayette Baker? Well, he came through town again and dismissed several postmasters for disloyalty, but surprisingly, John Jr. was not one of them. He did seek out a job in the paymasters department of the United States Department of War, but his application caused federal agents to be suspicious about his family's loyalty to the Union. And in 1863, John Jr. was dismissed as a postmaster for disloyalty. With the loss of his job, that caused even more financial crisis for the Surratt family. Mary found that her husband's unpaid debts and bad business deals had left her with many creditors. John Jr. started to sell vegetables in the city to help raise money for the family instead of helping to run the farm, tavern, and other businesses. This made Mary consider moving to her townhouse in D.C. And in December of 1864, she moved herself, Anna, and John Jr. into that townhouse and became a permanent resident of D.C. She leased the tavern in Surrattsville to a former D.C. police officer and Confederate sympathizer, John Lloyd, for $500 a year. In today's time... You can't live anywhere in Virginia, D.C., or Maryland for $500 a month, let alone $500 a year. I certainly wish that my mortgage was only $500 a year. In 1865, John Jr. transferred his title to the family property to his mother because it was believed that he knew a trader's property could be seized. So Mary either knew his motivation for the transfer of the title Or possibly suspected it. But because Mary still owed creditors, she turned the townhouse in DC into a boarding house. All right, so now we're going to move on to more interesting stuff and the reasoning behind this entire episode. A gentleman by the name of Louis Weishman moved into the Surratts boarding house in DC in November of 1864. In December of that year, Dr. Samuel Mudd introduced John Jr. to John Wilkes Booth. Booth then recruited John Jr. into the conspiracy to kidnap President Lincoln. Booth visited the boarding house many times over the next month, and sometimes it was at Mary's request. Friends of Booth's George Adzerot and Lewis Powell boarded at the house for short periods of time. George stayed at the Surratt Boarding House in February of 1865, but proved to be a heavy drinker, and Mary evicted him after just a few days. Lewis posed as a Baptist preacher and stayed at the Boarding House in March of 1865, and another friend named David Harold frequented the Boarding House on several occasions. John, George, and David hid two Spencer Carbine Rifles, ammunition, and other supplies at the Surratt Tavern in Surrattesville. Remember a little while ago, I mentioned a former D.C. police officer and Confederate sympathizer named John Lloyd, who leased the tavern for $500 a year? Mary came to the tavern on April 11th to have him get those shooting irons ready to be picked up, and then came back a few days later to retrieve a package from Booth that contained binoculars, for Lloyd to pick up later that evening. Mary then gave Lloyd a wrapped package that was from Booth. Booth's plan was to assassinate President Lincoln and to have George kill Vice President Andrew Johnson and Lewis to kill Secretary of State William Seward. Booth did in fact kill Lincoln, but George never attempted to kill Andrew Johnson and Lewis failed to murder William Seward, only injuring him by stabbing him several times. Around 2 a.m. on April 15th of 1865, the D.C. police visited the Surratt boarding house looking for John Wilkes Booth and John Jr. No one seems to know why the police came to the boarding house looking for them. Most historians believe that Weishman's friends who worked in the Department of War might have alerted federal authorities about the Confederate activity that was going on at the boarding house. doesn't seem to explain why D.C. police came instead of federal agents. The police did know that John Jr. was a friend of Booth's and his name was tossed around with being associated with the attack on the Secretary of State. But Mary lied to detectives and told them that her son had been in Canada for two weeks. She also didn't tell police that she delivered the package to the tavern on Booth's behalf. A couple days later, a neighbor told the U.S. military authorities that they saw three men come to the house the night of the assassination and that one of the men had mentioned Booth being in the theater. Now, it's not certain who gave that order, but someone told Colonel Henry Steele Olcott to arrest everyone at the boarding house. And when they visited the house to make the arrests, John Jr. was nowhere to be found. After searching the house... They found a picture of both hidden in Mary's room, as well as pictures of Confederate leaders. Other items that they also found in her room were a pistol, a mold for making bullets, and percussion caps. Mary was held at an annex at the old Capitol prison before being transferred to the Washington Arsenal, which is now known as Fort McNair. There were two armed guards stationed at the door to her cell from the beginning of her imprisonment until her death. And while she was incarcerated, she was given a rocking chair and allowed visits from her daughter, Anna. We did learn that John Jr. was in Elmira, New York at the time of the assassination. And after learning of Lincoln's death, he did flee to Montreal, Canada. Now we're going to move on to the trial. So the trial began on May 9th of 1865. Government officials decided that having the trial in a military court rather than a civilian one would be more beneficial to them because it would enable the court to get to the bottom of what was then perceived by the public as a vast conspiracy. All the alleged conspirators were tried simultaneously. A room on the third floor of the arsenal was made into a courtroom and the prisoners were brought into the room through its side door so they wouldn't be harassed by the spectators. During the trial, Mary was given special treatment. She was sat apart from the other prisoners, and some sources state that two armed guards sat on either side of her like they did at her jail cell, but it's not exactly clear if that happened or not. And while the other prisoners wore shackles, she didn't. She was also allowed to wear a bonnet, have a fan, and wear a veil to hide her face. Mary was charged with abetting, aiding, concealing, counseling, and harboring her co-defendants. No attorney was willing to take the job of being any of the prisoners' legal counsel, including Mary's, for fear that they would be accused of disloyalty to the union. One attorney made an exception, and Reverdy Johnson became Mary's legal counsel. Johnson's influence was damaged slightly when a member of the military commission that was trying the conspirators, challenged Johnson's right to defend Mary as he had objected to requiring loyalty oaths from voters in the 1864 presidential election. He decided not to attend most of the court sessions. Most of Mary's legal defense was presented by two other lawyers, Frederick Aiken and John Clampett. Lewis Powell's arrival at Mary's boarding house three days after the president's murder was the critical evidence that the prosecution needed to tie Mary to this conspiracy. John Lloyd and Louis Weishman were called to testify against her. Lloyd talked about the hiding of the carbines and other supplies back in March and the conversations that he had with her about getting the shooting irons ready. Weishman testified that he had been residing at the boarding house since November of 1864 and overheard many conversations between Booth, Louis, and George. Weishman then stated that he drove Mary to the tavern on several occasions and witnessed her and Lloyd spending time in private conversation. And he states that he also saw Booth give her the package that contained binoculars and attested that she turned the package over to Lloyd. Weishman also testified at length about the Surratt family ties to the Confederate spy and carrier rings operating in the area and their relationships with George and Lewis. He also testified about the December 23rd meeting with Booth and John and their subsequent meeting with Booth at Booth's room at the National Hotel. Finally, he told the Military Tribunal about the general excitement in the boarding house in March of 1865 after the failed attempt to kidnap Lincoln. Other prosecution witnesses reinforced Weishman's testimony. A lodger by the name of Honorary Fitzpatrick confirmed visits by George, Booth, and Lewis to the boarding house. Government agents testified about their arrest of Mary and Lewis's arrival and Mary's denial that she didn't even know Lewis. The fact that Lewis sought refuge in the boarding house after Lincoln's murder left a bad impression of her. Mary's failure to recognize him also weighed against her. Lloyd's testimony was the most important for the prosecution's case, for it indicated that Mary had played an active role in the conspiracy. The prosecution rested its case on May 22nd. The defense strategy was to impeach the testimony of key witnesses, Lloyd and Weishman. The defense tried to state that she was loyal to the union and that her trips to Surrattsville were of innocent nature. 31 witnesses testified for the defense, George Calvert testified that he pressed Mary to pay off a debt and that he requested Mary to appear at the tavern on April 11th to pay what was owed. Several witnesses said that Lloyd's testimony shouldn't be believed because of his alcoholism and that he was too intoxicated on the day of Lincoln's assassination to remember anything clearly. Anna Surratt testified that it was Weishman who brought George into the boarding house and the picture of Booth was hers. Anna explained that the reason her mother failed to recognize Lewis was because she had failing eyesight. Numerous witnesses were called to the end of the defense case to testify to Mary's loyalty to the Union, her deep Christian faith, and her kindness. The trial ended on June 28th of 1865. Mary was ill the last four days of the trial and she was permitted to stay in her cell. Both legal teams appeared to have flaws in their cases, except for Reverdy Johnson. Neither team employed highly skilled attorneys. The government's case was inhered by its failure to call as a witness the man who shared Lloyd's carriage when he talked with Mary and could have verified Lloyd's version of the shooting iron story. What is most important here, according to historian Roy Chamber Jr., is that the government had botched the attempt to apprehend John Jr. The defense's case also had problems. The defense never followed up on the inconsistencies in Weishman's timeline of Mary's last visit to the tavern, which could have undermined Weishman's entire credibility. Mary's guilt was a second to last to be considered as her case had problems of evidence and witness reliability. The sentence was handed down on June 30th. The military tribunal found her guilty on all but two of the charges. Mary was sentenced to death by hanging, and the sentence was announced publicly on July 5th. When Lewis learned of his sentence, he declared that Mary was completely innocent of all the charges. But George, on the other hand, bitterly condemned Mary, implicating her even further in the conspiracy. Lewis was the only statement by any conspirator exonerating Mary. Anna pleaded repeatedly for her mother's life with Judge Advocate General Joseph Holt, but he refused to consider clemency. She also attempted to see President Johnson on several occasions to beg for mercy, but was not granted permission to see him. Five of the nine judges signed a letter asking President Johnson to give Mary clemency and commute her sentence to life in prison because of her age and sex. But Holt did not deliver the recommendation to Johnson until July 5th, two days before Mary and the others were to hang. Johnson signed the order for execution, but did not sign the order for clemency. Johnson later said he never saw the clemency request. Holt said he showed it directly to Johnson, who refused to sign it. Johnson, according to Holt, said in signing the death warrant that she had kept the nest that hatched the egg. Construction for the gallows for the hanging began on July 5th after the execution order was signed. It was constructed in the south part of the Arsenal courtyard. Mary's noose was made the night before the execution because the man who made them did not think the government would actually hang a woman. It is said that civilian workers did not want to dig the graves out of superstitious fear, so soldiers at the Arsenal were asked to volunteer. Mary was informed that she would indeed be hanged and wept profusely. She was joined by two Catholic priests and her daughter, Anna, the night before the execution. Father Jacob Walter remained by her side almost until her death. Guards ordered that all visitors must leave at 1230 p.m. the day before the hanging, and Anna started to hysterically scream out of grief for her mother. It is said that her screams could be heard throughout the prison. On July seventh, eighteen 1865, at 1.15 p.m., a procession led by General Hart escorted the four condemned prisoners throughout the courtyard and up the steps to the gallows. Each prisoner's ankles and wrists were bound with manacles. Mary led the way wearing a black dress, black bonnet, and black veil. More than a thousand people, including government officials, members of the U.S. Armed Forces, friends and family of the accused, Official witnesses and reporters were in attendance. General Hancock limited attendance to those who had a ticket. Alexander Gardner, who photographed the body of Booth, was there to photograph the execution. Sixteen minutes elapsed from the time the prisoners entered the courtyard until they were ready for the execution. A white bag was placed over each of their heads after the noose was put in place. Mary's bonnet was removed, and the noose was placed around her neck by a U.S. Secret Service officer. She complained that the bindings around her arms hurt, and the officer said, Well, it won't hurt for long. The prisoners were asked to stand, and the chairs were removed. Mary's last words spoken to the guard as he moved her forward to the drop were, Please don't let me fall. The prisoners stood on the drop for about 10 seconds before Captain Ruth gave the orders to remove the supports holding the drops in place. Mary appeared to have died instantly. George quivered a bit and then was still, but David Harold and Lewis Powell struggled for five minutes, strangling to death. The bodies of the executed were allowed to hang for 30 minutes while they were being inspected to ensure that the deaths had occurred. Soldiers began to cut them down at 1.53 p.m., and Mary's body was cut down at 1.58 p.m. Anna Surratt unsuccessfully asked for her mother's body for four years. In 1867, the War Department decided to tear down the portion of the Washington arsenal where the execution took place and the bodies were buried. On October 1st of 1867, the coffins were disinterred and reburied in Warehouse Number 1 at the arsenal with wooden markers placed at each of the burial vaults. Booth's body lay beside them. In February of 1869... Booth's brother Edwin asked President Johnson for his body, and he agreed. And on February 8th of 1869, Mary's body was also turned over to her family. She was reburied in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Lloyd's body is buried 100 yards from her grave. And that is the story of the first woman to be executed by the United States government. And I got all of my information from Wikipedia history.com, and womenshistory.org. Thank you for listening to Murder Bucket, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.